0: It's good to be with you again this sunday evening and i pray that the lord will bless uh, what few words i've got to say to you shall we pray father we thank you for the opportunity to share your word again and we pray lord that you'll take the words that are spoken and those that are spoken truthfully lord and we pray that you you'll use them in the building up of this church in jesus name amen now can you all hear me at the back No. you can't Okay. (coughs) Daniel chapter 1. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, with part of the vessels of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar to the house of his God. And he brought the vessels into the treasure house of his God. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel, and of the king's seed, and of the princes, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored, and skillful in all wisdom, and cunning in knowledge, and understanding science, and such as had the ability in them to stand in the king's palace, and whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat, and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them through years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah unto whom the prince of the eunuchs had given names. For he gave unto Daniel the name of Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. Now God had brought Daniel into favour and tender love with the prince of the eunuchs. And the prince of the eunuchs said unto Daniel, I fear my lord the king, who hath appointed you your meat and your drink, for why should he see your faces worse looking than the children which are of your sort? Then shall ye make me endanger my head to the king. Then said Daniel to Melzar, whom the prince of the eunuchs had had set over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah prove thy servants, I beseech thee, ten days, and let them give us pulse to eat and water to drink. Then let our countenances be looked upon before thee, and the countenance of the children that eat of the portion of the king's meat, and as thou seest, deal with thy servants. So he consented to them in this matter, and proved them ten days. And at the end of ten days their countenance appeared fairer and fatter in flesh than all the children which did eat the portion of the king's meat. Thus Melzar took away the portion of their meat and the wine that they should drink and gave them pulse or vegetables. As for these four children, God gave them knowledge and skill in all learning and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. Now at the end of the days that the king had said he should bring them in, then the prince of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king communed with them, and among them all was found none like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore stood they before the king. And in all matters of wisdom and understanding that the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers that were in all his realm." And Daniel, Daniel continued, even until the first year of King Cyrus. Now you may not be aware, as members of this church, that stands on the word of God as being inspired by the Holy Spirit in its entirety, but in academic circles the book of Daniel has, since the early part of the 18th century, since what is laughingly called the Enlightenment, been one of the most ridiculed books of the Bible alongside Genesis and Revelation because in them is told the fate and the timing of that fate in this book in particular of Satan the god of this world and that few would risk their academic careers in trying to defend even the smallest portion of it we're all no doubt aware of the story a bit later on in Daniel where Hananiah Mishael and Nazariah renamed Shadrach Meshach and Abednego by the Babylonians After refusing to bow down and worship the great statue that the king raised in honour of himself, and that the king had them thrown into the fiery furnace, which was heated to such intensity that the men who threw them in were burned to death. And yet they came out of it with not a hair of their head, even singed. And this story in particular has been singled out for the greatest mockery by the unbelieving mind. And that's the problem here, isn't it? The unbelieving mind. The mind that says there is no God and that even if there were then he couldn't possibly intervene in the natural way of things in such a way that miracles or signs just aren't possible and yet that's exactly what God had told Israel that they should look out for as an authentication that a particular work or message had come from himself because let's face it creation wasn't and life itself isn't it as an ongoing miracle And God has intervened in the natural course of things in many ways, as you're all aware. The bush that didn't burn with Moses. The lengthening of the day with Gideon. And that Jesus was raised bodily from the dead. Just a few examples of where the Lord intervened in the natural order. And demonstrated who it is we're dealing with here. The creator of heaven and earth. But why pick on the book of Daniel in particular? And it's surely because the events that are foretold in this book are so accurate that even the existence of them to the one who refuses to believe have to be explained away by natural means and so they cast doubt on the date of the writing they say that it couldn't possibly have been written when the Bible says it was written and that it must have been at least in part been written a few hundred years later and so in effect the prophecies are no longer prophetic but looking back and the author, whoever he was, pretended them to be prophetic. And that's the reason I read out the first chapter because it quite clearly dates the book. In the third year of the reign of Joachim, king of Judah, came Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, unto Jerusalem and besieged it. In other words, 605 BC. I to you the sovereignty of God in all this. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. God had decreed long before in the Torah exactly what would happen to Israel if they continued in disobedience. And in that year, just as in an earlier year with Israel, then judgment fell upon Judah, the only tribe which remained of Israel, after the rest of the nation had been turned over to their enemies, again by the Lord's intervention. But you might notice something about the Lord and his relationship with his covenanted people in the course of your daily Bible reading and that is that even in the midst of disobedience and judgment he always preserves a remnant of those who are faithful to him and through whom he worked and spoke something we might take on board ourselves in these days of apostasy within the church in general. He did it in Elijah's day, didn't he, many years earlier where the prophet complained of the Lord that out of all Israel, he was the only one left who loved God. But what was the Lord's response? As recalled by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans, have I not reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal? And so it was with this particular judgment. The Lord had kept a faithful remnant, and Daniel and his three friends, not to mention Ezekiel and Jeremiah, were among them. Now, we talk sometimes about the Bible being self-authenticating, don't we? That is, by the witness to the truth and consistency of the message contained in its pages, that is, it's beyond contradiction, something that could never be achieved by all those different authors who wrote it over a period of 1600 years without contradiction, uh, through their own, only by their own efforts, but with the aid of the Holy Spirit, as written down in the original languages. I know that in our house, contradiction between two people often occurs, as it probably does in yours. And we accept the truth of the word in this church. But the unbelieving mind always looks for ways of ignoring the evidence. It's evidence that's been known and documented about for years, even by those who seek to denigrate it. And yet barely a word of it ever reaches the public. But in the case of our four friends, far from being fictitious characters as the critics would have us believe, there isn't just the biblical evidence that we know about and understand, but all of their names are preserved in the temporary, contemporary cuneiform sources. That is, the records preserved on clay tablets of that same Babylonian empire of that particular time period into which they've been exiled. And we might ask the question, how is it that the names of four Hebrew prisoners of war taken from their homeland to serve a foreign king could find their way into the annals of that great empire into which they were taken? Well, we can find the one of the answers in Daniel chapter 3 from verse 26. Daniel chapter 3, verse 26. <clears throat> Just after Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah had come unscathed from out of the fiery furnace, we read that Nebuchadnezzar came near to the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spake and said... Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, ye servants of the Most High God, come forth and come hither. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came forth of the midst of the fire. And the princes, governors, and captains, and the king's counsellors, being gathered together, saw these men upon whose bodies the fire had no power. Nor was a hair of their head singed, neither were their coats changed, nor the smell of fire had passed on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar spake and said, Lest be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who hath sent his angel and delivered his servants that trusted in him, and have changed the king's words and, and yielded their bodies, that they might not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that every people, nation, and language, which speak anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, shall be cut in pieces, and the houses shall be made a dunghill. Because there is no other God that can deliver after this sword. And then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. And they became so influential that their names are recorded in the records of the empire of Nebuchadnezzar. But going back to the early date of the book of Daniel for a moment, from 605. B.C. when our four friends came into the picture. It's written with such consistency of of purpose and such historical integrity and so seamlessly put together that we really shouldn't have any cause to doubt that it had only one author. And yet there are those who say that it was written by between two and six authors in the second century B.C., which begs the question, doesn't it? How would one or more second century writers be able be accurate enough in their historical detail for their work to be able to be passed off as a genuine 6th century work. And furthermore, would a 2nd century BC writer be sufficiently fluent in 6th century BC imperial Aramaic as was used in Daniel to be able to carry it off? Well, we do have a 2nd century BC book of Jewish composition as it happens which speaks of the same King Nebuchadnezzar. And while it's written in Greek, which was the language of that particular day, and not Aramaic, it does put itself forward as a work of history. So forgetting the Aramaic requirement, not to mention the Hebrew, just how accurate was this particular author's grasp of history? Well, here's a quotation. When King Nebuchadnezzar was ruling over the Assyrians from his capital city of Nineveh, Judith chapter 1, verse 1. Can anyone see a problem with you in the opening line? Well, as we saw in our opening chapter, King Nebuchadnezzar ruled not the Assyrians but the Babylonians and from his capital city of Babylon and not Nineveh. Whatever else the book of Judith might be, it's clear from a historical point of view that we can't even get past the opening sentence. Suffice to say that it can't hold a candle to the book of Daniel when it comes to historical integrity. But going back to our so called higher critics, they also claim that there appear in the book several what they call loan words. What they mean is that there are words in the text which are not of Aramaic or Hebrew origin, but of Greek, which they say shouldn't be there at all if it's a genuine work from five to six hundred BC. And they make a lot of these loan words that they say shouldn't be in it. And again the unbelieving mind just sucks it up. And even believers can become discouraged when confronted by such arguments. And the thrust of their argument concerning these loanwords is that they weren't in use in 6th century BC Persia and would therefore be unknown by any 6th century writer, thus trying to cast doubt on the authenticity of the whole book. But in reality, they are clutching at straws. Firstly, these loanwords that they talk about number just three. And so, as you can see, the book of Daniel is hardly weighed down by Greek words, which, by the way, it would have been if it had been written in the 2nd century. Greek, by then, was the official world language, and the book of Judith, just mentioned, was written entirely in Greek. But even more significant, these three words that are such a problem to them all refer to musical terms and so can never be used for dating purposes. We've got on the corner here a piano, which for over 300 years has been called exactly that. And it's a known fact that Nebuchadnezzar employed Greek mercenaries and diplomats in his service, not to mention Greek musicians who played on Greek instruments with Greek names in, their, in his courts. And so it's no surprise that Daniel might mention them here and there in his book by the Greek names that they were even called then. Just as Isaiah did when he prophesied God's judgment against Babylon over a hundred years earlier, even before Nebuchadnezzar's time. In Isaiah 14 and verse 11, he wrote, And thy pomp is brought down to the grave, and the noise of thy vials, musical instrument, the worm is spread, and under thee the worms cover thee. One of, the other Greek, one of the other Greek words is symphonia, again a Greek musical term which was around in Daniel's day. But one of the most telling blows to their so-called evidence that it was written in the second century, written, so so they say, by the Maccabees, for the Maccabees, as an encouragement in their resistance to Antiochus Epiphanes, the leader of the now Greek Empire, who was cruelly oppressing the Jews. One of the most telling blows comes from the book of Maccabees itself. And they would have done well to read it before spouting off their conclusions, because in it they would have found the early surviving mention of Daniel and his three friends in any extra biblical source, that is, apart from the records of the Babylonians themselves, on their own clay tablets, already mentioned. And it comes in a speech by Metathias to his own sons. And he commanded them to look to their Old Testament ancestors and follow their example in their struggles against the Greeks. And towards the end of this speech, he says this, and I quote Elijah, because of his great devotion to the law, was taken up to heaven. Ananias, Azariah, and Mishael were saved from the flames because they had faith. Daniel was a man of integrity and the Lord rescued him from the mouth of the lions. Take each of these ancestors of ours as an example and you will realise that no one who puts his trust in the Lord will ever lack strength. 1 Maccabees 2 verses 58-61 to The year of his speech is given as 166 BC, the year that he died. And the writing of the book of Daniel is said by our enlightened friends to have been the year before, 167 BC. And so we're asked to believe that two or several of the Maccabean Maccabean men of the Bible wrote a book that they called Daniel and then managed to somehow pass it off as scripture, part of the Old Testament, when it was only a year old. I think their rabbi might have had something to say about that, don't you? you. So we know for the so-called Enlightened Ones of the present age and their paper-thin arguments. I think you'll agree that we weighed up some of their so-called evidence and found it wanting, to say the least. And I'm grateful to the recently deceased Bill Cooper for some of the evidence that he shared and much more in his book, The Authenticity of the Book of Daniel. And the reason I've taken so much time over it is that we're called upon to be ready to give an answer, aren't we, to the hope that is in us. And knowing some of these arguments that might come our way or that we might hear on some of the religious programs on the TV to try and discourage us from our faith, knowing them makes us better prepared to defend our one true faith. Even if Which then in the course of time happened just as the Lord said they would and when he said they would. And it's still in the process, by the way, that we can only stand in all, can't we, at the sovereignty of our God, whom we worship, if we take the time to think about what is revealed, and his purposes and plan of salvation for Israel and the world. And it's as if, too, that he knew about the arguments that some of our latter-day folks would come up with and leave just enough incontrovertible, incontrovertible evidence from extra-biblical sources for those to find, he'll take the time and trouble to do so. As we've already said, unbelief is a moral decision made by those who refuse to believe, despite all of the evidence. And we'll take a little time now to look, as it's laid out in this, one of the linchpins of the Bible, when it comes to prophecy. Now, we're not going to look at that that prophecy of Daniel chapter 8 concerning the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and the ones that would follow after it up until the present day and beyond, and which was interpreted for him by the Archangel Gabriel in the second half of the chapter. But we'll be looking at the 70-week prophecy of chapter 9 and reading from verse 20. Daniel chapter 9, verse 20. And to set the context, Daniel had been praying to the Lord, confessing his own sins and the sins of his people, also to be understood in light of the 70 years of exile that Jeremiah had spoken of.